Hey, today's reading is Psalm 81, 1, 10 through 16. It can be found on page 545 of the Bible's Next to Your Seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him, and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. God of grace, as we come into this room from different kinds of stories and places, um, we may have uh, questions about this faith. We may not associate ourselves yet with anything really that's been going on here today. We may feel like we, we don't belong or like we're just looking at it from the outside. Others of us may come... Um, with hurts and wounds, and we perhaps even have a history of bringing our wounds and hurts to you and knowing you as a sort of healing presence in our lives. Others of us may come, and there has been some good news on one front or another in our life, and we feel quite grateful, and we, we are associating those good things with your faithfulness. And others of us come maybe just kind of numb, Perhaps the comforts of life and entertainments and the daily routines are functioning for us like anesthesia and we just kind of feel out of it. We're unsure how we might connect with you or with anything that's going on today. And from all these different places, the truth is we're still, um, in one crucial way, we're all, all the same. We're all more of a mess than we care to admit. There's more brokenness, fragility, and... Um, evidence of that brokenness in our lives as much as we might try to hide it. And as we process that and sit with that reality, um, we are met through Scripture, through this, this service already today. We are met with your grace, with a God who says, even though you're more of a mess than you care to admit, you are more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever imagined. Simultaneously, broken failures and loved deeply and fully by a God who forgives and a God who accepts and a God who calls us home. We, we pray, God, that everything that um, we listen to and that we hear and that we absorb today would feel like you calling us home with your grace in a way that changes us and transforms us into looking more and more every day like your children. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have seen the movie, uh, the cartoon movie, Ratatouille? Anybody seen it? And the premise of the movie is that anyone can cook, right? Gusto, anyone can cook. <laughs> anyone can cook. This, the, the, and the plot goes with, with this old school restaurant in Paris that used to kind of be big and famous and uh, the chef was Gusto, and his, his tagline, his motto, his mantra was, anyone can cook. 
And then the movie carries on to the point where there's this kind of food critic who's very old school and very um, intense, and he does not like this. He doesn't think everyone can cook. But in the end, and a spoiler alert, and, uh, and, and trigger warning for people with rat phobia, um, is, that, is that the movie ends with this, the, this Anton Ergo, the food critic, has this experience of this food that brings him back home to his childhood, and he has to end up writing the, um, the editorial or the review of this restaurant and say, sure enough, anyone can cook, and the cook of the restaurant is the rat <laughs> who's making the food in the kitchen. Can anyone cook? There was a show when I was growing up on TV, I think it was some kind of local channel, and it was um, the, the, the tagline at the end of the show, the chef would say, and his, his name was Yan, and he would say, if Yan can cook, so can you. Anybody remember that show? If Yan can cook, so can you. Yeah. See, it's this theme, anyone can cook, right? But as in our own experience, I think we all know that not all cooks are created equal, right? Not all chefs, right? It's because a lot of you have tried and you say, eh, I don't know if anyone can cook. Not all chefs are created equal. And think about our culture and all the messages and all the kind of ways that um, the, the, the entities of our culture that speak to us, you know, our schooling, our parents, our uh, media and pop culture and all the ways that they give us recipes, the ways that they are sort of a chef for us and they're, they're serving these dishes to us and saying, eat this, this will satisfy you. Do this, make your life about this, fill yourself with this, and this will satisfy. And yet not every voice coming to us like that, not every chef is created equal. They tell us things like, um, you know, if you, if you fill yourself with good friendships and you surround yourself with people who are positive and love you, you will be satisfied in a lasting kind of way. They say your work life, your career success will, if you can get there, if you can do that, if you can achieve and, and make your way into a successful place in what you do with your occupation, you will have satisfaction so we, you know, we fill ourselves with these things. You know, if you have romance, right? Romance will fill us, right? Romance promises things, right? But then wait, why are there these, um, these marriage seminars that we have, right? To kind of tinker and work and, and kind of do some of that fixing work. Doesn't, doesn't romance, isn't it promised to be the recipe that will satisfy you, that will fill you deeply in a lasting way if you find that one person, and uh, money, of course, right? It's, it's always about money. You know, money will satisfy. If you just, you know, all of us you, you would probably say, you know, like we look at that paycheck that came, um, if you're lucky enough to get a paycheck recently, and, and we, we all probably have that feeling that, man, if we could just add one zero to the end of that paycheck, then I'd, then I'd be good, right? There's always this kind of longing. But, but it's interesting how that, that never goes away. You know, you get that extra zero, and then you want another extra zero. On that. I mean, it's just kind of like, do you, do you ever get that lasting, deep satisfaction? It's no wonder that Mother Teresa um, said this simple quote at one point, and she wrote this book called A Gift for God. She says, there is a great hunger for God in the world today. Everywhere there is much suffering, but there is also great hunger for God. Well, we're going to talk about that hunger today, and Psalm 81 kind of introduces us to this idea that there's a, there's an anal a food analogy and a 
chef analogy when it comes to God. He's ready to, to provide something. How do we think about that? How do we make sense of that? I found, a, I found this week a, a book online. I, don't, I actually don't know that it's a very good book. I don't, I'm not necessarily recommending you going out and buying it. I'm not going to buy it. It didn't look quite like the kind of book that was going to really have staying power, but it had a very intriguing title and a very interesting few lines on the book jacket that just described what the book was about to try to catch you. And I, and I like kind of how it's talking. The title is Feeding Your Appetites. The subtitle is Take Control of What's Controlling You by Stephen Arterburn. And this is, the, this is the kind of grab you quotes that are, that, um, that I, actually, I actually like some of this terminology. Our appetites are like fire. They can fill our lives with warmth or they can become an uncontrolled inferno that is capable of destroying a career, a marriage, a soul. If you've ever struggled with cravings, whether for chocolate, shopping, alcohol, sex, cars, work, or power, you know how it works. Is there a connection between these appetites that we experience, we maybe struggle with, that we want some kind of self-development book that's going to help wean us off of certain things that maybe have become an inferno rather than just a warming fire? Is there some sense in which this is a realm to explore spiritually, like there might be right ways and wrong ways to curb and explore the inner appetites bubbling on up? Psalm 81 says, as we read it in verse 10, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And maybe you notice some of the following sentences after that. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. So what's going on there? There's sort of an interesting and helpful um, other passage in Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now, this is, of course, this psalm is alluding to kind of a history of a people in a certain time, the people of Israel, and using the food analogy to kind of describe where they're at. Like, where are you in your relationship with God? And, and how does kind of this idea that God could fill your mouth, where are you with that? And maybe we're all processing that ourselves this morning. This is a little bit of back, helpful background to understand Psalm 81. Moses actually gave this, this kind of uh, forward-looking oracle of, of sort of a prophecy as they were about to enter into the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, you know, good food and drink. And he gives this oracle that's sort of, um, it's a little bit shocking right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that basically predicts that they wouldn't, that, that they'd take a certain trajectory even though God was going to feed them so lavishly. It says this, God made Israel, or him, ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag with curds and milk from herd and flock, and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan, and the finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. Israel grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock his savior. Is there, is there a dynamic like that in our lives? Of getting, 
almost like if you're a Warriors fan. Um, Steve Kerr, Coach Steve Kerr, one time said, and it, it, it played out in the playoffs this last year in the finals, that this team doesn't handle success well. <laughs> Is there a sense in which Israel or us spiritually, we don't always handle success well. We don't handle being fed well. There's this really interesting old children's tale that I stumbled on this week by uh, Francis Turner Palgrove, and he's a 19th century kind of British critic poet. And he, and he writes this. I'll just give you like one uh, little quote, a little window into this story. It's a story about a bear who then is, is made by a fairy into a king. And it, it's all about his appetites, And so he's made into a king, and suddenly he has all these lavish feasts before him. And let me just read this part of the tale. The bear king had never tasted so uh, anything so delicious before, and and he thought that the the fish, the flesh, and the fowl that all of it in creation must have been spread before him. So numerous were the dishes. But next day, a new feast was spread, and so it went on day by day, and day by day, his old greedy nature increased and gathered strength. But like the rich man in the parable, the king's pride and selfishness grew in his, with his wealth and his opportunities of using it. Though the poor of his kingdom were starving, he would not spare a crumb to relieve their misery. The moral, of course, is, is of this nature, that unchecked satiation in our life leads to a longer-term spiritual problem that we may not even realize is happening. And so in the Christian church, we have upheld, and especially lately, there's more written about these spiritual uh, wise ones. There's this group of people that the Christian church has, has upheld as people who have a particular insight into spiritual things, and that group is called the Desert Fathers. You've got to be real careful that you, don't, you, know, you get the spelling right. Because the, the theological implications of calling them the desert fathers could be quite big, especially on a Sunday like this where we're talking about God the chef, right? The desert, not the dessert fathers. I thought, I thought I'd get a better laugh with that one. Maybe it was the setup. You, some of you can tell me about the timing on that one. I honestly thought that was an advanced preaching humor, humor note right there, but... Um, I guess I got some work to do. Not the desert fathers, but the desert fathers, right? And one of the desert fathers, um, I don't have the quote, but somebody I was, I was reading about um, spiritual practices and about fasting, and one of the desert fathers answered someone who came to him with a question about sexual lust. So this is the question coming, what do I do? And the desert father answered by saying, the, the, what you need to do is you need to practice fasting, and, I, and that kind of caught me off guard. That doesn't seem like that. You know, it seems like you have to kind of shake your head a little bit and go, what? I don't get it. Like, how does, um, how does that work, doing fasting with food in my stomach relate to some other appetite that's gone awry in my life? But the more you actually practice fasting, and my own practice of fasting has helped, um, understand how this all works, the more you um, scratch underneath the surface of one appetite, you eventually are working yourself down in seeing the interconnectedness of all of our appetites. And you get down, if you keep scratching and keep working, and fasting is one of those practices that helps get there, you see that all of these appetites kind of deep down within you are all sort of a muddle. And if you kind of follow that muddle down even, and you're willing to go into the muddle of those appetites, you see that they all kind of connect down eventually to one root appetite 
And it's a big, usually mostly unfulfilled appetite that we have. It's a hunger for God. It's a hunger for only something, something that only God can answer and that God can fill. And that's at our root. So when you go about something like fasting, it tends to expose things and we, that we'd, we'd much rather not expose. It tends, to, it tends to get down into things and we don't like how that feels as those appetites get exposed. And you'd much rather bury those things under, say, maybe some Gunther's ice cream. Um, or you'd rather, you know, drown them in a panic IPA from track seven. Or you'd rather smother them with shoki ramen, right? But instead, you know, fasting kind of says, no, deal with it. Look at it. Check this out. There's a, a prayer, actually, that I have used in fasting. And it's, it's in the worship guide, just to give you a sense of kind of working in this realm, digging into this realm. So listen to this prayer. God, the aching increases and the weariness is setting in. This is a prayer used during, during a fast. Without you, my life is one long ache, one long craving for what is missing. You are satisfying me in life these years, but I crave more. I know that other hungers still hold too much sway. My belly pain represents that right now. With you, I can be deeply satisfied and have the nourishment needed to truly live and fight and love and serve. Without you, I will die of malnutrition, binge eating on cotton candy and KFC. I'll lose muscle tone and get sickly while parasites and cancer take me over from the inside. Yet the cravings will only grow. Put your unglamorous food into my mouth and help me to trust it. So there's a swirl of appetites in us. Are you, are you ready to jump into that? Are you willing to try to dig into it? Have you? Are you aware of some of that? And if you do give that a good hard look, you, kind of, you might start to feel kind of like, whoa, I'm in, I'm in rough shape. And so you'll say, well, what is this God going to do with me with all my wayward appetites? How can we imagine God responding? As you look at Psalm 81, it kind of looks like, oh, no, because it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And then it says, but my people would not listen to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. What's this? How's this God going to react? It almost sounds in the psalm like there's this mood and this this tone from this God, like, like, hey, this is the last call from the kitchen. I'm turning the burners off, and I'm about to close the door to the restaurant, and, and everybody's gone off to the one down the street anyway. So it's closing time. The offer's off the table. But that's not how it is in, in God's you know, test kitchen, as it were. That's not the God of the Bible, and that's not God's way of operating. We fear, of course, that that's got what God is like. And we see, I don't know how many of you um, have seen some of these shows. Probably a lot of you have seen these Master Chef shows and these Top Chef, whatever these shows are. I don't even know all of them, but I've seen little snippets, you know. And these, these angry chefs, right? They're the, they're the master chefs, you know, like Gordon Ramsay. And... Um, but, 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 you know, they seem so, so mad and they seem like someone you wouldn't want to even spend 10 minutes with in real life, right? Uh, this person who, like, nobody's good enough to be in their kitchen with them. Um, is that what God's like? Is that your idea of God, the chef? I hope not. I hope, and, but it's good to acknowledge if you've been walking around with that, it might be time to kind of tweak that and work on that a little bit and understand what the God of the Bible is like. Because just as we, you know, we've dealt at times with the idea of God, the shepherd, 
And we say, within that analogy, what happens? Well, God the shepherd actually enters into the flock and becomes the sacrificial lamb. And last week we talked about God the rock, and with God the rock, the, the rock that you should plant your life on, the most dependable thing that ever exists, becomes the stone that the builders rejected. And as we look at this analogy, there's no other way to see it and to look at this table, in fact, than to say that the master chef becomes, really, it's strange to say, right, but becomes the food, becomes the, your bread of life, your living water. And that's, that's essentially what Jesus is. That's how, how God coming in and stepping into our world He's stepping in to become our food, our real spiritual food and drink. Um, do you know God that way? Do you know God to be this, uh, have this incredibly undeserved invitation to come in and sit down at his table? Do you think of God that way? And do you think of God, have you, or have you experienced this, this other, any taste, any even hint of this otherworldly satisfaction that if you get a taste of it, it's like, Oh man, I want to I want to have that all the time. Have you do you know of God? Is that inviting? Do you have you ever experienced God? Is that satisfying? Um, I think it's good to just ask that question and just sit with whatever your answer might be, because we're all in different places. Some of us may say, you know what, I've been trying for years. I've never tasted anything like that. Or maybe it's like, no, I just, I just think of God as the Gordon Ramsay guy, you know? Like, and I'm just trying to do it right and get in, be acceptable. <laughs> do you know God as this inviting and do you know being fed by God as this satisfying? Way more than any of these flashy things in our life could satisfy. And wherever you are in that answer to that question, there's, there's a human problem, a human dynamic that seems to be spoken to throughout Scripture. It's right here in Psalm 80, where it's, um, or 81, where it says, you know, but my people would not listen to me. It's all throughout the parables of Jesus when he's talking about these banquets, and, you know, God is like this person throwing a banquet and just scattering out the invitations to whomever. And it's just the most, uh, to understand those, it's the most lavish invitation. It's the most lavish feast. It's such a privilege to be invited, and people are basically saying, no, I got to, you know, I'm going to, I'm actually shining my shoes that night. You know, I'm actually vacuuming the floor mats in my car that evening, and I can't make it. To, you know, it's like that, you, you know, once every five-year kind of feast, and people are like, eh, you know, I got, I got a busy schedule. And that's actually the part of the, of the parable that is the shocking, ridiculous, LOL part of the, that, that you know, the, the people hearing this parable would have like, what, what, why are these people not coming to this obviously huge, amazing, lavish, privileged feast? And that's, that's sort of the human problem with being fed by God. That's the, that's the condition we just have to, have to figure out and do, in a sense, maybe do battle with or just work on or, or, or find out what way in which we're going to open ourselves up, we're going to show up to the table of grace that God has for us. Verse 10 says, Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. That's, that's hard for us to actually do. It sounds really easy, but that's the thing we keep kind of not doing. Open wide your mouth. There's a, um, as John Calvin, the, the um, 16th century reformer theologian, as he put it, when he talked about this verse, he said, 
It follows that the reason why God's blessings drop upon us in a sparing and slender manner is because our mouth is too narrow. And the reason why others are empty and famished is because they keep their mouths completely shut. We're in one of those two categories. And the Bible's calling us to open wide your mouth. The picture is much more of... um, of just the way that all baby chicks in a nest, I've never seen one who doesn't do this, they just, they just have their mouth wide open. You can't almost believe it. It's like, it seems like the whole body is just a mouth you know, on a baby chick. If you've ever looked at a nest, it's just these huge mouths wide open, ready to be fed. And that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the picture we're given. And if you're still unconvinced of why, why would you do that? Can you trust God to feed you well? One of my favorite analogies is an old English, uh, uh, somebody was just kind of riffing on, on this kind of idea of God feeding us. And um, we don't even know who the author is, but it's quoted by someone named um, Simon Tugwell. And, uh, and so this is, this is one of my favorite analogies. It's of God, the God who owns a tavern and has the best drink to give people. And so this is one of the ways, just let me read a couple sentences here of how it's described. Um, such liking they have of that drink. So just, you know, we're imagining knowing God is like being served this drink we've never had before. Such liking they have of that drink that of none other wine they think, but only for to drink their fill and to have of this drink all their will. And so they spend what they have and then they spend or pledge their coat or hood and all that they may to drink with liking as long as they desire. Such liking they found therein with the sweetness of God that as drunken men did spend what they had and gave themselves to fasting and to keeping vigil and to doing other penance. This idea that um, you, go, you become reckless to get more of this taste if you actually taste the goodness of being fed by God, if you actually taste how satisfying it might be. And maybe you're sitting there and you're the person that says, you know what? I'm sorry, but it's going to take a while because religion has left a bad taste in my mouth. (laughs) Of course it does. Of course. Um, But will you give up on the possibility that God, unlike your religious experiences, God can actually satisfy and taste good? And are you willing to have some curiosity about why do you even imagine that your encounter with God or church or Jesus or religion, why do you, where does that even come from that you imagine it should taste good, that it should be so satisfying? Where, where might that come? Could that be just a little echo inside of you that knows deep down there's one who can satisfy you? Keep looking, keep opening yourself to, to this God, and you will get a taste. That's the promise. Let us pray. I'm going to use a prayer from Henry Nouwen. Um, Let us pray. Our God, why then do we keep expecting happiness and satisfaction outside of you? Why do we keep relating to you as one of our many relationships instead of our only relationship in which all other ones are grounded? Why do we keep looking for popularity, respect from others, success, acclaim, and sensual pleasures? Why, Lord, is it so hard for us to make you 
the only one. Why do we keep hesitating to surrender ourselves totally to you? Help us, O Lord, to let our old self die, to let, uh, to, to let die the thousand big and small ways in which we are still building up our false self and try to cling to our false desires. Let us be reborn in you and see through you the world in the right way so that all our actions, our words, our thoughts can become a hymn of praise to you. God, we pray that whether we sit here and we feel like our mouth is open, whether our spiritual mouth is narrowed or whether it is closed by your Holy Spirit, would you get your grace into ourselves and deep into our lives so that we taste it and are satisfied and can live from the nutrition of that grace? It takes, it's going to take your work much more than it is ours. We pray in Jesus' name.